if the acoustics are really not very good, at least my Great. hearing aids don't like them very much. Yeah, yeah. All right, I will speak uh, That's the, in a good, uh, rich, mellow tones. <laughs> Um, so I, I have a, a, um, I have a story to tell here, and I, I hope to get through the, the whole of it. So I'm going to just jump right in and w without too many preliminaries here. Um, but this is about the various appearances of the involuntary or something as being necessarily beyond the reach of one's own will uh, that make their... Uh, appearance in Proust's novel. Um, Gilles Deleuze's famous uh, study of Proust frames the entire narrative of Proust's novel in terms of the hero's apprenticeship to the decipherment of signs uh, through which he ultimately discovers his vocation as a writer. As Deleuze puts it in the first sentence of his preface, this book considers Proust's entire work as commanded by an experience of science that mobilizes the involuntary and the unconscious, whence the search as interpretation. End quote. This is the structure of the long apprenticeship described in the novel and in the final volume, The Vocation of Writer, does indeed turn out to be that of translator, reader, and interpreter of signs. So it's Deleuze's invocation of the involuntary uh, that I want to begin with. This is an insistence that runs throughout his study, and indeed the very notions of sign, meaning, and interpretation that concern him are governed by their placement within the categories of the involuntary and the unconscious. One culminating formulation of his is when he says, as a matter of fact, the truth is not revealed, it is betrayed, it is not communicated, it is interpreted, it is not willed, it is involuntary. That's at the end of Deleuze's book. Uh, anyone familiar with Proust's text will see immediately how much Deleuze's formulation seeks to contain. At one stroke, it aligns two of the great axes of the novel, linking on the one hand the erotic and social themes of deception and unmasking, and the consequent privileging of the signs by which a person reveals the truth in spite of herself, against her will, and on the other hand, the great theme of involuntary memory itself, the retrieval of the past, part of whose essence it is to resist the efforts of the intellect or the conscious will. Along the first axis of the involuntary, then, we have such elements as the unconscious revealing gesture of Odette, uh, as opposed to the emptiness or false trails opened up by her overt declarations and promises, which are not to be trusted. Uh, from there, uh, there is the descent from the pursuit of love to various forms of interrogation, spying, to then finally the consoling of all skepticism in the hypnotic pleasure of watching Albertine asleep. In both his social and his erotic pursuits, we follow Marcel's loss of faith and renunciation of an ideal of communication for the silently labor of reading and interpreting the signs that are inadvertently given off. For now, we may call this the erotic or interpersonal axis of decipherment. The other axis displayed in Deleuze's formulation, that represented by the theme of involuntary memory, has a more overtly metaphysical reach as it stands both for a kind of access to the real 
the criterion of genuineness for a certain kind of experience that's also a form of self-discovery. Here the deciphering gaze is turned inward toward the self rather than outward toward objects of erotic and social aspiration. But here as well, the exclusion of the conscious will sets the terms for the relevant notions of interpretation or decipherment themselves. At both the opening of the novel and the close of the novel, framing both the early episode with the Madeleine and the later revelations just before the Garmont party in the final volume, nothing seems more important to clarifying the nature of the search and the terms of its possible success than to insist on the exclusion of the conscious will or intellect if these experiences are to deliver the reality of the past to us. So from volume one in the Madeline episode, he says, it is labor in vain to attempt to recapture it. All the efforts of our intellect must prove futile. And in the final volume in the uh, anteroom at the Garmants, uh, the essential character was that I was not free to choose them. I realized that this must be the mark of their authenticity, these sounds and signs that he is interpreting. <clears throat> So it's in this connection that I want to think about the sign of the involuntary itself. What is its meaning? The exclusion of the conscious will is invoked both in the metaphysical project of access to the real and in the access to the interiority of others, the truth that's only revealed or betrayed in spite of or against the force of the will to conceal. But they're much denser associations than this. For one thing, when we return to the role of the experiences of involuntary memory themselves and the question of what they restore to Marcel, I'm calling him Marcel rather than the narrator because that just sounds more like the name of a character to me. Than, uh, not, not to confuse that person with the person of Marcel Proust. What they restore what these involuntary memories restore. It's clear that the meaning of the exclusion of the will from the process can be no simple thing when we reflect on the fact that it is in fact nothing other than the restoration of his own will and the calling to his infinitely laborious task that these revelations of involuntary memory provide him with. It's in the library of the Garmont, after the paving stones, the sound of the spoon, and the touch of the napkin, that he declares the rediscovery of his task and his ability to work, and he begins to undo what he calls the decline of my health and my will that mark the story of his life so far. And it's following upon this episode that Proust gives us his most exalted pan to artistic will and labor, reaching one crescendo in the comparison of the task he's embarking on with the building of a cathedral, before setting on the more modest comparison of composing his own great work with the making of a dress. Thus, if the efficacy of involuntary memory requires the exclusion of any conscious effort, still the meaning of its efficacy turns out to be the restoration of the will and the capacity to work themselves. So in this paper, I won't be attempting to do much more than pull on these threads, but I hope it will be worth the effort just for the sake of displaying some of the astonishing density of the network within which they figure in Proust's novel. If we return to the scenes of involuntary memory themselves, those famous 
scenes from the story, we see that their form and the role of the contra-voluntary within them is as much magical as it is metaphysical. The scene with the Madeleine, after all, and the chance encounters with the uneven paving stones, the sound of the spoon and the starched napkin, these are scenes of magic, scenes of spells being broken. And indeed, it's worth pausing on the fairy tale genre within which so much of the action unfolds and which defines so many of its relationships, since it's one of those features of the novel so obvious and pervasive that we forget to remark on it. So for starters, fairy tales are quest narratives quite generally and are marked by repeated attempts upon some long-sought goal which resists one's efforts but ends up being realized often through sheer luck or in a way that excludes or baffles one's own agency. Proust's Recherche is the story of a boy who has to solve a series of riddles. And his path is marked throughout by encounters with people in disguise or who are subject to metamorphoses of rank, of gender, or to changes as radical as that from a human being to a form of plant life. He longs for admission to the inaccessible mythical kingdom conjured by the name Germant. Indeed, the world itself, as such, external reality itself, appears to him as a distant, enchanted land, one that he seeks to reach someday, where, things, where the things he's read about in books, as well as his own desires, will be fully real and substantial. He passes through various stages of enchantment and disenchantment, and his decipherment of the signs he's presented with will depend on luck or some other power beyond that of his own will. At certain stages of his quest, the object he seeks the truth from will, quote, vanish at the touch, particularly when he makes an attempt on their secrets by force of will. Other times when he's close to abandoning his quest, a chance encounter with some indifferent-seeming object will spontaneously unlock the secret stored within it, something that no account of conscious effort or mere intellect could accomplish. What is enacted in such encounters is a version of the reawakening of sleeping beauty, or the Celtic belief he alludes to just before the first scene with the Petite Madeleine, according to which, quote, the souls of those whom we have lost are held captive in some inferior being, in an animal, in a plant, in some inanimate object, and which will, quote, call us by our name, as soon as we have recognized them, the spell is broken. And in the world of fairy tales, of course, also belongs the great Proustian theme of names and the magic of names, quite generally. Names as sealed vessels containing entire worlds, as well as the summoning power of names and the potency of having one's name exteriorized and being voiced by another, which reaches one kind of crescendo in the moment when Gilbert first uses his Christian name and Marcel receives, quote, the impression of having been held for a moment in her mouth, myself, naked, without any of the social attributes which belonged equally to her other playmates. And as in other fairy tales, in addition to the power of names over their bearers, there are the words, the oaths, the declarations which return prophetically to come true in a terrible, unanticipated way, like a maliciously granted wish, 
as when Swan, in his agonies, takes evil pleasure in imagining further perfidies of Odette, such as the thought of her, imagine, writing a letter asking him for money to rent a castle in Bayreuth from which he will be excluded, and savoring in his indignation the thought of composing his own vindictive reply, only to receive just such a letter the very next day. And finally, as in a fairy tale, there is an original trauma, an injury which makes the search necessary in the first place, sets it in motion, and which brings us back to the meaning of the will and its exclusion. For most of the story, Marcel is someone living under a spell which he needs to be released from so that he can release, realize his vocation as a writer. The episodes of involuntary memory are explicitly cast as the charms with the power to undo the spell and release to him the secret of his vocation and finally make it possible for him to embark upon it. What locked this away from him and condemned him to years of idleness and wasted time is something that happened long ago when his most ardent wish was granted in an unanticipated way, the wish for his mother's goodnight kiss when his ferocious infantile will will somehow attained its object, but with the wish somehow being granted in the wrong way and with devastating consequences. He refers to this in the library of the Gamont at the very end of the novel, after the concatenation of spell-breaking episodes that deliver the past to him, He's explicit about the connection between the original trauma of the kiss granted and the significance of involuntary memory. Quoting now, during that night that was perhaps the sweetest and the saddest of my life, when I had, alas, won from my parents that first abdication of their authority and from which later I was to date the decline of my health and my will, and my renunciation each day disastrously confirmed of a task that daily became more difficult, and rediscovered by me today in the library of these same Gamont on this most wonderful of days, which has suddenly illuminated for me not only the old groping movements of my thought, but even the whole purpose of my life and perhaps of art itself. The spell, the curse, is placed upon him by the original trauma of extorting this kiss from his mother, the event that leads to the decline of his will, which it will take the rest of the novel for him to recover from. And it's Swan's presence at that same evening of the original trauma, and the fact that Swan is in a certain way responsible for his mother not coming upstairs as usual that night, that binds Marcel's fate to his. A central aspect of the spell he's placed under is that he is condemned, Marcel, to repeat all of Swan's erotic and epistemic agonies at even greater length. Where the fates diverge, of course, is that Swan fails to become a writer where Marcel will succeed. But while the unbinding of the spell must take forms that in some way exclude the agency of the subject, it's also true that for both Swan and Marcel, the spell itself is a frame of mind that has to privilege the involuntary in the expressions of other people and is compelled to devalue or derealize whatever can be attained merely by one's own conscious efforts. For the original trauma to the will is twofold. It leaves him with both a will that is weak, that is unable to assemble its powers to embark on its task, and also a will that's undermined by its own success, 
or whose own success is experienced as traumatizing, destructive, or devaluing of whatever it can attain. Further, with regard to others, the privileging of the unwilled exists along two contrary dimensions of value, a positive one and a negative one, and assumes, therefore, both the undermining and disillusioning forms defined by the demands of jealous skepticism, which is what Deleuze concentrates on, and the redemptive, or at any rate non-disillusioning forms, as in the privileging of natural, unwilled expression by such figures as Marcel's grandmother, and the, quote, disguised involuntary resemblances that are the proof of the uniqueness of voice in Van Toy's septet. So for any project that demands the exclusion of the voluntary or the defeat of the appearance of the voluntary, we may ask two sets of questions. One is, what is it that either the involuntary or its appearance interferes with, blocks our access to, and why? And here I'll be brief, but the list is long and varied. What, what is the thing that the will blocks access to? The retrieval of the past, the spontaneity or truth in expression of word or gesture, uh, the reality of the external world, um, recognition from Madame Germont, uh, the revelation of the distinctive individual voice in the Van Toy, uh, in the genius of a composer like Van Toy, um, the sense of achieved reality in one's own uh, words and deeds, and uh, the only accessible um, truth of another human being, the other, another world that is a human, sorry, the, the other world that another human being is. Those are the things that lie on the other side, some of them. In addition to asking what it is that lies beyond the reach of the conscious will, for any project requiring its exclusion, we can ask where that element to be excluded is to be located, the thing that has to be got around. That is, we can ask whether the particular will in question is that of the protagonist or subject himself, i.e. the demanding lover, the epistemological subject, or is an element on the side of the object of interpretation or interrogation, the mistress, for instance, whose overt expressions must be bracketed and deciphered, but who betrays herself in the inadvertent word. So this initial list will suggest a broad division within the contra-voluntary between the exclusion of the subject's own will as a condition for success and the exclusion of something voluntary on the part of the other, the object of his interest. Of his interest. So just to see how much of Proust's world is governed by these themes, I'll assemble some instances of each of these types. I've just laid it out very schematically right now. So it may be the subject's own consciousness or agency that needs to be canceled or excluded, or it may be the voluntary or deliberate character in the expressions of another person that must be overcome or denied. So I've got four broad lines of connection here. The first I'm calling the metaphysical axis, where the object of interest is primarily the impersonal world, and the goal is conviction in the substantial reality or value of something in it. The exclusion of the self or the conscious will from the realization of this goal has multiple sources. Sometimes the condition is represented 
as a stage of childhood, as when in volume one he says, quote, for at that time everything that was not myself, the earth and the creatures upon it, seemed to me more precious, more important, endowed with a more real existence than they appear to full-grown men. In thinking of this as a mere stage of life, however, we must recall that in Proust, childhood lasts forever, and with it the sense that reality is defined by the exclusion of oneself from it. And in that case, any attempt to, uh, at entry into this realm can only further demonstrate the unreality of the place one finds oneself, whether it be some celebrated salon or the world as such. In this way, the social axis of the world of the Guermantes and Marcel's conviction in, quote, the insignificance which my presence in it imparted to the gathering, that's as much an expression of metaphysical as social exclusion. From this more metaphysical perspective, the subject's consciousness itself is figured as a kind of agency that annihilates the reality of the world it seeks contact with. In one of the more famous passages from the first volume, there's this. When I saw an external object, my consciousness that I was seeing it would remain between me and it, surrounding it with a thin spiritual border that prevented me from ever touching its substance directly. For it would somehow evaporate before I could make contact with it, just as an incandescent body that is brought into proximity with something wet never actually touches its moisture since it is always preceded by a zone of evaporation. So this thin spiritual border is not the same as, say, Locke's veil of ideas, for it is no mere fabric hanging between the mind and the world, but is instead a figure of the subject's own agency and its annihilating effects. And the beauty of the image of the incandescent body in the zone of evaporation is at the same time expressive of the elusiveness of reality and the destructive nature of this consciousness when it is an erotic object, the mind of another person which finds itself within the zone of evaporation of this incandescent body. Here as elsewhere in Proust, the metaphysical and the aesthetic cross and recross each other for the exclusion of the self's agency as a criterion of the real is also of a criterion of the beautiful. Again from volume one. For me, there were no mighty spectacles save those which I knew not to be artificially composed for my entertainment, but necessary and unalterable, the beauty of landscapes or great works of art. I was curious and eager to know only what I believed to be more real than myself, what had for me the supreme merit of showing me a fragment of the mind of a great genius or the force of the grace of nature as it appeared when left entirely to itself without human interference. The epistemic interest only in what appears as more real than oneself will characterize Marcel's interest in everything from great minds like Bergat to the church at Baalbek and the little band he discovers there who seem to constitute a world of their own and ultimately to his own past itself, which through the interventions of involuntary memory reaches him as something with an achieved reality, his past, which his present ever receding life cannot compare to. 
Second broad category, that was the metaphysical with the aesthetic mixed in. The symptomatic is the next broad category. Along the second line of the involuntary, it's the evasion or exclusion of the conscious or deliberate character of the expressions now of another person that's the primary focus, rather than the action of one's own incandescent consciousness. So here, then, along the symptomatic are to be found the rich and overlapping themes of hypocrisy, snobbery, deception, the conscious concealment and the unconscious revelation of desire, and the infinite interpretability of human speech, and the themes of spying and voyeurism. Here the object of interest is another person rather than the impersonal world, and the goal is knowledge of another subjectivity. This is played out in the endless self-undermining speculations about the actual meaning of some casual remark or some denial or admission of Albertines, the decipherment of some bizarre behavior from the Baron de Charlus, or what Marcel painfully learns about how he gives himself away. It's primarily this theme which suggests a total reading of the sort that Deleuze proposes in terms of an apprenticeship to the patient unfolding of signs unconsciously given off. And it is enunciated as a hermeneutic principle in passages like the following from the final volume, where the narrator speaks of, quote, having for so many years looked for the real life and thought of other people only in the direct statements that, about them, which they supplied me with of their own free will, in the absence of these, I had come to attach importance, on the contrary, only to, to disclosures that are not a rational and analytic expression of the truth. The words themselves did not enlighten me unless they were interpreted in the same way as a rush of blood to the cheeks of a person who was embarrassed. This is, of course, a skeptical strategy, a way of avoiding or compensating for the duplicity of others by simply bypassing the dependence on their volition for their revelation of themselves. But it's equally important in the world of the novel that this symptomatic privileging of the involuntary expression has a positive as well as a negative pole. There's no more benign figure in the novel than Marcel's grandmother, and an attribute recurrently attached to her is the value she places on naturalness of expression, which she prized above anything else. And the alignment of the natural and the involuntary is as pronounced here as it is in the metaphysical aesthetic privileging of nature left entirely to itself that we saw earlier. In fact, the same comparison with blushing as something paradigmatically involuntary is used by Proust to describe how Saint-Luc made an immediate conquest of Marcel's grandmother, quote, by the naturalness which he put into his kindness as well as everything else. Later, when his grandmother gives Saint-Loup an autographed edition of the letters of Proudhon, the involuntary is underscored here. Quote, he was overwhelmed by a joy which he could no more control than we can a physical condition that arises without the intervention of our will. He blushed scarlet as a child who has just been punished. And my grandmother was far more touched to see all the efforts he made to contain the joy that convulsed him than she would have been to hear any words of thanks that he could have uttered. 
So when Marcel's grandmother is touched by this display, it's not any skeptical desire of hers that's gratified, as if she can now overcome some doubt about Saint-Louis' actual gratitude. Spontaneity and genuineness of expression, even as manifesting themselves against Saint-Louis' own will, are instead bound up with a kind of rapport with the person, the interest of which is not primarily epistemic. In this, it provides a link to another dimension of the symptomatic that parts company with its more familiar skeptical or disillusioning function. For it's the strictly involuntary resemblances between Van Toy's two great compositions that we're provided with nothing less than a kind of metaphysical aesthetic proof that, quote, in spite of the conclusions which seem to emerge from science, the individual did exist, end quote. However Van Toy may have consciously striven to express the continuity of phrase and variation in the two works, quoting, those deliberate resemblances, the work of his intellect, necessarily superficial, never succeeded in being as striking as the disguised involuntary resemblances, which broke out in different colors between the two separate masterpieces. It is indeed a unique accent, an unmistakable voice to which, in spite of themselves, those great singers that original composers are, rise and return, and which is a proof of the irreducibly individual existence of the soul. So while it's true that in Deleuze's words we are presented here with, quote, an experience of signs that mobilize the involuntary and the unconscious, uh, what is hereby revealed is anything but disillusioning and undermining. Hence, even in its symptomatic role, the privileging of the involuntary has a broader and more complex role than that of the familiar hermeneutics of suspicion. Here, as elsewhere in Proust, the epiphanic coexists with the disillusioning as a mode of proof. Thirdly then, third broad category, the skeptical The more straightforward applications of the exclusion of conscious agency to a strictly skeptical project concern the broad currents of the novel where the goal is knowledge of the truth about another person and are mostly displayed in the stories of Odette and Albertine. And because the situation in these narratives is an intersubjective one involving two people, the conscious agency to be excluded or defeated will typically be both that of the subject, i.e. Swan or Marcel, the epistemic subject, as well as that of the object of their skeptical obsessions, Odette or Albertine. In this context, the distorting element in conscious agency is not so much the superficiality of ordinary self-knowledge as it is the will to conceal and deceive on the part of the other. Hence, as with the symptomatic generally, the primary conscious agency to be evaded is that of the other person rather than that of the subject himself, as it was in our first two categories. However, since, for instance, Odette's will to deceive is set in motion by contact with Swan's interrogating consciousness, it's ultimately both his agency and hers that have to be eliminated from the scene for there to be a chance of the truths making an appearance. Quote, so here's Swan's interference with uh, access to what he wants to learn here. Quote, 
he had the sudden suspicion that this hour spent in Odette's house, in the lamplight, was perhaps, after all, not an artificial hour invented for his special use, with the object of concealing that frightening and delicious thing which was incessantly in his thoughts without his ever being able to form a satisfactory impression of it, an hour of Odette's real life, of her life when he was not there, with theatrical properties and pasteboard fruits, perhaps it wasn't that, but was perhaps a genuine hour of Odette's life." End quote. So it's sufficient for Swan simply to be present there as a witness for the scene to be transformed from a piece of Odette's real life into a piece of theater, the theatrical properties and the pasteboard fruits. Hence what I've been calling earlier the metaphysical and the symptomatic axes of the involuntary cross each other here, for it's Swan's very presence in the world that renders this portion of the real inaccessible to him, for the action of his skeptical consciousness now acting like an incandescent body disturbs the object of his gaze, rendering inauthentic all of Odette's words and actions and transforming her very room into a stage set. The difference between the distorting action of consciousness here and in the case of the theme of the metaphysical and accessibility of the world is that here, when the object of interest is another person, we have a more straightforward explanation for how the activity of the subject's consciousness derealizes what it's directed upon. Swan's presence, his consciousness, must be excluded because it is the thing which provokes Odette and provides her with every motive for concealment. Hence, he must remain unobserved and thus avoid being a disturbing element in the consciousness of the other. In Marcel's parallel narrative with Albertine, ordinary voyeurism is no longer enough to ensure the perfect passivity of the object of skeptical inquiry. Instead, the very consciousness of the other must be obliterated so that it is only the sleeping Albertine. Albertine, quote, animated now only by the unconscious life of plants that can be proof against the derealizing contact with his agency and his desire to know. Quote, when she was asleep, I no longer had to talk. I knew that I was no longer observed by her. I no longer needed to live on the surface of myself. In the more skeptical, now to the erotic interpersonal. The, the last and fourth broad category. In the more strictly skeptical narrative, as in the main lines of the stories of Odette and Albertine, it's the desire to know the truth about them that fuels the investigations of Swann <coughs> and Marcel. The project of knowledge here demands the exclusion of the agency of the other, because this agency, which is practically constituted by the will to conceal and deceive, is precisely what must be defeated if the project is to have any hope of success. But in the narratives of both Odette and Albertine, this obsessive desire to know is itself a secondary strategy, a compromise which only comes to possess Swan or Marcel when something else has first been denied them. When the kiss has been withheld, one is reduced to strategizing about how to obtain it by stealth. And when the overt response of the other to one's desire is withheld, then one seeks to compensate for this and regain 
an imaginary form of control by seeking merely to know the truth about her desire, bypassing the conscious agency of the other in favor of deciphering the signs given off in spite of herself. This is a secondary strategy in that the epistemic energy channeled into finding out the truth about Albertine's erotic history, for instance, is in reaction to despair at attaining a response from her that he can believe in. Thus, along this final dimension of the involuntary, which we may call the erotic interpersonal, it's the subject's own agency which must be excluded, not, however, to ensure the passivity of the object of his investigations, but rather to prevent his own compulsion to usurp the position of the other and thereby place permanently out of reach the response from outside that he seeks. In the earlier skeptical privileging of the involuntary, it was primarily the agency, the deceiving agency of the other that needed to be defeated. In what I'm calling now the erotic interpersonal, it's primarily the subject's own will that needs to be excluded now, not primarily for the sake of knowledge of the other, but for the sake of preserving the possibility of a kind of response from the other, something genuinely other, something from the outside that's not merely dictated, projected, or extorted by the self. So along this dimension, it's essential to the reality and the value of what is sought for in the other that it remain beyond the reach of one's own ability to manipulate or control. Um, what's described early in the volume, The Captive, as the final and most pathetic form taken by jealousy, the quote, despair at having obtained fidelity only by force, despair at not being loved, that is in the self-defeating, that is the self-defeating realization of the skeptical dream of overcoming the otherness of the other, overcoming them as a separate locus of agency and consciousness. As contrasted with the symptomatic dimension of the contravoluntary, as, as contrasted with the epistemic privileging of the unwilled and the inadvertent expressions of the other, here it's not a matter of one's defeating knowledge in the exclusion of the subject's own will, um, but rather preserving the possibility of response from the other being the thing one wants in the first place. Because if by flattery, magic, or manipulation, Marcel could simply install the desired response in the other, it would thereby cease to be the object of his desire. Early in the uh, bad faith section of being in nothingness, um, Sat says about the look, this is not from the section on the look, but earlier, the meaning of this look is not a fact in the world and that is what makes me uncomfortable. Although I make smiles, promises, threats, nothing can get hold of the approbation, the free judgment which I seek. I know that it is always beyond. And a quote of Sat. Um, it's what is desired in the free approbation of another that makes for the special possibilities of self-defeat. The temptation of the subject to impersonate or to usurp the position of the other person and thereby gain this recognition all by itself, which activity renders that approbation unreal, merely an ineffectual projection of one's own desire. 
So in bringing this to a close, I want to look briefly to the culmination of so many of these themes in this one passage that I desperately want to get to. Um, I want to look at a couple of scenes that bring out the special position of written or spoken words in Proust as emblematic of virtually all of these uh, dimensions of the contra-voluntary that I've traced here. One of the great comic moments in the, late in the novel is the episode of the long-anticipated appearance in the Figaro of the article which Marcel had sent them long ago and finally despaired of ever seeing in print, and which appears intermittently as a running joke throughout the first several volumes. You know, when is this ever going to come out? Um, <clears throat> when it does, it's a moment which brings together his first efforts to assume his vocation as a writer and with it, the accession to an order of substantial reality which had been denied him heretofore, along with the proviso that this reality requires the suppression of the appearance of one's own agency, so that the long-imagined free approbation he's been seeking may appear to be truly, may appear to be coming truly from without. So his first encounter with this long-awaited article in the Figaro is genuinely by chance and he reads it at first, not recognizing it as his own work. It was so long ago that he read <coughs> it. But he immediately tries out various ways to recapture the naivete of that first encounter, only now doing so with all the subsequent benefits of a narcissistic perspective, combining in one person now the position of the author and that of the casual but discerning reader who's just happened upon this unexpectedly congenial piece. He resolves to practice reading the article, quote, while forcing myself to imagine that it had been written by someone else, end quote. In encountering the words on the page from the perspective of this, quote, impossible creature who occupies the position both of self and other, he finds himself, quote, charmed by their brilliance, their unexpectedness, their profundity. <laughs> the guiding principle of the fantasy seems to be if one cannot literally put words in another person's mouth, one can at least adopt a perspective on one's own words as those spoken by another. What's enacted here, then, is the mirror image of the familiar Proustian image of the ego's engulfing absorption of the other. For what's played out in this scenario is instead the ego's projection of itself into an imaginary exterior so that can it respond to its own words as though coming to it from without, from a source truly outside the self. Now the Figaro episode, interestingly, is one of the elements of Proust's novel which makes its first appearance in Contre saint beuve which is never published in his lifetime, um, where it's compared with the parallel imaginative effort of mentally composing a letter from his mistress that would contain the very words he most longs to receive from her. He abandons this effort when he's struck by the thought that his very enunciation of these words, as though coming from her, will extinguish their power, will somehow place them forever out of bounds as genuinely coming from without. His thought here is as much magical as it is dawning self-knowledge, because it's as though the very enunciation of a wish to hear these words from her makes its object vanish. Years later now, not in Contre saint beuve but in the novel. This same reflection is played out at greater length in the story of Gilbert in volume one and is separated by thousands of pages from the appearance of the Figaro episode 
which is now transferred to the fugitive. The story of Gilbert begins with hearing her name at Tansonville, then later at home, devising ways to find occasions, quote, to for his, make his parents pronounce Swan's name. So he wants to get them to say it so that he can be charmed by it again and again. And continuing with Marcel's, quote, endless repetition of writing her name in his exercise books, an early attempt at appropriating the substantial reality of another, an effort which fails when he sees, quote, the vague lines in his own hand, and he says, I felt discouraged because they spoke to me not of Gilbert, who would never so much as see them, but only of my own desire, which they seemed to show me in its true colors as something purely personal, unreal, tedious, and ineffectual. These last epithets, of course, are practically the a priori categories defining the Proustian self, unreal, tedious, ineffectual, the problem of which sets the terms for the search itself and the role of the contra-voluntary within it. Still with the Gilbert story, he sends her a note, a petit bleu, with the name of an article by Bergat that she had asked for, and this re-encounter then later with his, his own note when he gets a reply. Now something held in her hands, after having made its transit through the world and marked by the hands of others that it had passed through, affords him now the literally ecstatic experience of seeing himself from without, with his desire now sharing the full substantial reality of a postmarked envelope. Quoting now, but in the address of the pneumatic message, which only yesterday was nothing, merely a petit bleu I had written, in which, after a messenger had delivered it to Gilbert's porter and a servant had taken it up to her room, had now become that precious thing, one of the petit bleus she had received in the course of the day. I had difficulty in recognizing the futile, straggling lines of my own handwriting beneath the circle stamped on it at the post office, the inscriptions added in pencil by a postman, signs of, of effectual realization, seals of the external world, violet bands symbolical of life itself, which for the first time came to espouse, to maintain, to lift, to gladden my dream." End quote. So here we have the rudiments of a kind of metaphysical proof of one's assured substantial existence in the world, the transformation of something that was merely an act of one's own interiority into something encountered as if from without, not merely an expression of one's own tedious and ineffectual desire, but now existing in the same realm of reality as the object of one's desire herself. Now, even as fantasy, however, this victory is partial as well as fleeting. Admittedly, the postmarks by another hand and the initial difficulty in recognizing his own handwriting provide him with a possibility of imagining his own words as coming from without, as securing a validation from the external world, and enjoying a kind of independent existence. This fantasy is the imagining of something independent of his will, but it's not yet the imagining of an independent will, another consciousness, which is, after all, what any desiring consciousness wants as the object of its desire, and not simply some external object. And there, the corresponding fantasy is harder to maintain, not merely the externalization of one's own words, but 
the projection of those words into the mind and out of the mouth of another consciousness so that they may be experienced not merely as coming from somewhere without, as in a metaphysical proof, but as coming from her, that person whose desire or recognition I seek. It's at this point that Proust then reworks the passage from Contre Sans Beuve, which originally combined the pleasures of externalization in the Figaro episode with the fantasy of writing in his mind the very letter from his mistress that he hopes to receive, and then abandoning this in alarm in the realization of that as self-defeating. In the novel, a few pages after the re-encounter with his own Petit Bleu from uh, Gilbert, Marcel is desperately hoping for some overt declaration of love from her, one which he knows he will, uh, I'm sorry, one which we know, not he, that he will eventually receive from her, but only several thousands of pages later in the final volume <coughs> when she is Madame Saint-Loup. Quote, Ever, and I'm nearly at the end here, um, every evening I would beguile myself by imagining this letter, believing I was actually reading it, reciting each of its sentences in turn. Suddenly I would stop in alarm. I had realized that if I was to receive a letter from Gilbert, it could not in any case be this letter, since it was I myself who had just composed it. And from then on, I would strive to divert my thoughts from the words which I should have liked her to write to me, for fear that by voicing those words, I should be excluding just those words, the dearest, the most desired, from the field of possibilities. Even if by some improbable coincidence it had been precisely the letter of my invention that Gilbert addressed to me of her own accord, recognizing my own work in it, I should not have had the impression that I was receiving something that had not originated from me, something real, something new, a happiness external to my mind, independent of my will, a true gift of love. So the passage of thought described here is, of course, an attempt at self-correction when he retreats in alarm. But we're still in the realm of magical thinking, for his alarm expresses itself in the thought that his very voicing of the words he wants to hear from her will somehow exclude them from the field of possibilities, as if voicing them really had already telepathically placed them in the mind of Gilbert, so that hearing them now from her could only be the experience of his own purely personal, unreal desire. But when the passage, what, what the passage interprets magically in the very expression of the wish making its object vanish is the reassertion of the contravalentary along several of its dimensions at once. When what the subject desires is the desire of another, the object of one's desire then must be conceived of as outside one's immediate control, independent not only as the postmarked envelope or the agate marble <coughs> are independent, but independent as, as a desire which is not one's own. That is, in longing for and imagining this letter from Gilbert, he's imagining its source in something that would be in a position to respond and confirm his desire rather than being merely another pointless expression of it. This longing produces both the fantasy of producing Gilbert's words for her and the undoing of that fantasy. For the self-defeat that he realizes and shrinks from at the end lies in the fact that any words he produced himself could never play that role, could only always be merely another acting out of his desire and not its fulfillment, 
Here the exclusion then of the subject's own will from its own conditions of satisfaction is closer to an assertion of the separateness of persons than it is to the metaphysics of involuntary memory. And yet even this image of separateness is expressed in the epiphanic description in the Germont Library of the sealed vessels that preserve the past for us, as well as in the mother's kiss, which has to be transported upstairs without breaking its seal, and the separateness the narrator speaks of in the final volume of, quote, the book whose hieroglyphs are patterns not traced by us is the only book that really belongs to us. Okay, thank you. That was a lot. I hope I didn't read too fast. But uh, you see how I needed to round off at the end. It would have been terrible not to, for me anyway. <laughs> not to get to the end. Uh. Relax. It was Indeed, that, that uh, end part of the paper goes by um, quickly and, uh, and, uh, and something I haven't developed as much as I would like to. Um, we could think of the, um, the metaphor of the incandescent consciousness for, for a moment as, as um, a kind of, you know, picturing the mind as having a kind of active power that... Um, has a, a uh, dissipating or annihilating or derealizing effect on what it gets close to, what, what, what it attempts to uh, make contact with. And um, 
That part of what I'm trying to draw out here is that that can mean very various different things. Um, and what, what the meaning of derealization is and what the what peculiar kind of anxiety is, is being expressed in the, in the figure of that um, incandescent consciousness. Uh, so in the, um, in the more purely metaphysical um, axis of that that I'm describing, uh, I'm not going terribly deep with that, but I'm alluding to, and some parts that I didn't read out in here, but you know, Old ideas in philosophy, uh, like the Lockean veil of ideas, or, or really sort of in a sense closer to Hume, really, the idea that uh, the mind um, spreads itself over reality. Uh, and so that we are, you know, our own, our own sentiments, our own impressions are in fact um, spread upon reality so that we really just see them, you know, when we see color, or when we see actions as, as good or bad, or you know, the, the various, the gilding and staining that, 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 uh, that Hume and other empiricist and non-empiricist philosophers. So, so that's, one, that's one picture we might think of. There's something about the very activity of the mind that then blocks access to reality as it truly is. And to, to get there would require somehow evading that, those projecting capacities. Then in the symptomatic, it's, it's, think of the incandescent consciousness and what its derealizing effect is. Um, in the most sort of straightforward senses, say, Swan's um, obsessive jealousy alerting Odette to the need to conceal and deceive further. So just him being around um, derealizes the scene uh, because, uh, um, because his skeptical consciousness has uh, created that motive in her um, so that uh, he can't, uh, none of his skeptical questioning, which is, that's the incandescent activity of his mind, uh, can um, undo that and get to the, the truth of Odette because it's the very um, um, framing of his relation to her in terms of this obsessive de desire to know that as he realizes only too late, you know, requires his exclusion from the scene for there to be any possibility of knowing because his presence on the scene, that incandescent consciousness, um, uh, turns her into a, a figure of theater. Um, uh, and then in the, in the, the last, uh, in the story of Gilbert, in what I was trying to get out of there in the invocations of the... Um, involuntary and derealization and, and, and undoing of a fantasy in, in that context, it's not that he wants to, um, it's not either the Humean problem of gilding and staining reality, um, nor is it the Swan's problem of uh, I've, I've turned my, uh, these are rich Cavellian themes, of course, uh, in, 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 in turning my relationship to the other into a problem of knowledge, I've, I've constructed an impasse for myself so that uh, the person can only, and I will, you know, I will therefore uh, uh, discount any um, overt voluntary declarations of this person as not just more, more signs to be um, interpreted along with the 
um, inadvertent ones. That's not the issue for the Gilbert story. There, it's rather, uh, it's because it's not a, it's not a desire um, to um, penetrate her interiority and to know what's going on in there. He needs a response from her. He wants to hear her say that she loves him, right? And, and, and that response uh, is not a, a matter, of, it, it wouldn't be satisfying by uh, um, the, uh, the merely skeptical project, uh, couldn't be satisfied by a, a voyeuristic uh, project. Um, either, uh, or, or by the undoing of the signs of deception that she inadvertently gives off, but has to be coming from her. And yet, you know, the, 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 the depth of his desire, um, you know, uh, uh, tempts him again and again to compose those very words for her so that he can then have the pleasure of hearing them as if, as if spoken by her. But so there, that's why I was saying it's more the, um, it's, it's, the, it's an issue of the separateness of persons more than an issue of the um, empiricist or other uh, uh, problems about external reality. Nor is it a strictly skeptical problem about the separateness of persons, but it's in a sense the difference between knowing and acknowledging in, in a sense, or, or the desire for knowledge and the desire for acknowledgement. Uh, so, sorry, that's sort of a long no, answer, but, but that, uh, that's it. Just to comment on that a little bit, that also makes sense of the um, explicit scenes of sadomasochism that the narrator's interested in, um, from the first scene of sadism at Montjuvan, where um, Madame, Mademoiselle Bentoy's friend spits on her father's picture, to um, his fascination with, um, with Saint-Lou and chains. And the whole idea would be that... Um, the way you pay for sadism is you tell the dominate the dominator what you want the dominator to say to you, uh -huh, and uh -huh. so that would then be the kind of um, extremely vivid yeah, yeah. Um, version of what it is he wants from Gilbert. That's good, and that's in, in, that's. Uh, I, I bet you could find passages where I mean there are others passages where Charlou is complaining to Jupien, you know, yeah. that like you, you call this, you, call you this said he was a, you said he was a, a well-muscled butcher, but yeah. he was a yeah. mere stable boy. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I bet you could find passages in his expression of disappointment where it's focusing on the um, the, uh, the 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 planting of the very expressions. In, yeah, in, yeah. In, in the ritual, that's 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 disappointing him. Yeah, um, uh, that's that's good. Again, further comment on that comment. Um, often you would talk about will, and sometimes you would talk about desire. So I guess my first question is: Are those things distinct for you, or are you sort of collapsing them into one concept? So at times you would talk about the problem of the involuntary, the will, etc., and then you would sometimes switch into the mode of talking about desire. And so I'm just first curious. Do you, do you think there's a robust distinction? Or when you speak of the will and the involuntary, you also mean the problem of desire? And the reason why I'm curious what mm -hmm. you think about this is, I mean, one of the real difficulties in post is um, sort of what is it exactly of the other that we're, that's elusive, that we're trying to possess? Mm -hmm. If you're a kind of Sartrean, and you invoke Sartre within you know, the problem of the look, for Sartre, um, and this is the sadomasochism analysis, it's really the problem of freedom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, 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 the sadomasochistic relationship of love, which is what all relations with love sort of evaluate into, has something to do, and as you said, that I desire the other's desire, but for Sartre, that's really, I, 
my freedom is trying to compel another freedom mm -hmm. to recognize me freely without precisely that compulsion. So mm -hmm. in a sense, I have to make myself fascinating to the other mm -hmm. by first making the other fascinating to myself, right? Mm -hmm. And so there for Sartre, it's clear that the problem is about freedom. Mm -hmm. But it's not so clear that that's the case unilaterally in Proust, because one could say that the real importance of the theme of homosexuality and lesbianism, and you know, the elusiveness of Albertine is that she might be a lesbian, mm -hmm. and this sort of world of lesbianism is something from which I, as, as a man, as Marcel, even though there's aspects of my own homosexuality that are manifest, I'm completely excluded from. There, it's more the problem of sexuality, which frames, if you wish, the elusiveness of the other, rather than a problem of freedom. Um, and in sadomasochism, of course, it's very complicated, and, and, I, and that's what made me thought of the scene in the hotel at the end with the Baron de Charlus, um, also where it's very complicated because he's getting whipped and he wants the guy to look like Morel, right? So there's this sense yeah. of, I want the gaze of Morel to be on me. And in sadomasochism, it's very complicated. Is it really just about power and the will and freedom? Or is it about something else? Or is it really difficult to disentangle the two? So I was just curious, sort of broadly speaking, in your comments, you would sometimes speak of the will, sometimes speak of desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if that's important for you to have a real strong distinction, or if it's more important for you to allow that kind of play between the two. I, I think the latter, uh, just to answer that, that part of the question. Um, uh, but everything you're saying, I mean, that, I mean, that, that certainly is um, um, how I've been operating in, in writing the paper, that not making a strict uh, distinction between um, the will and desire here, and, and seeing um, 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 seeing the force of the of the contravoluntary in straightforward contexts like voluntary memory as being of a piece with uh, what has to be excluded in, um, in seeking um, the desire of another in, in the case of the Gilbert or the, or the Albertine stories um, where uh, um, where at least it hasn't been important in my reading so far to, to think of uh, um, uh, I'm thinking of both of those, both what I'm calling will in places and what I'm calling desire there, as expressions of the person as such, you know, uh, uh, such that, such that um, usurping that place then um, defeats, the, the, defeats the possibility of um, um, attaining the object of one's desire. But I mean, I'm not responding well to your question. No, it might be I, interesting to look I, at um, Deleuze's book on sadomasochism, because his book on sadomasochism is really a direct response to Sartre's discussion of sadomasochism, right. where he wants to propose a very different understanding, which in a, in a sense, what at stake is not the problem of power and freedom, mm -hmm. but he has a sort of different way, and then he then proposes different ways to understand perversity and fetishism and things mm -hmm. like that. So it might be interesting to tease that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I, I think in Proust, and I think you've shown it very well, it's very complicated, right? Because at mm -hmm. moments, it really does seem that it's about the problem of involuntary and freedom. And at certain moments, it really is about desire and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And he has this ability to move back and forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right, right, right. I'm just thinking, I mean, everything you said is like, 
wonderfully um, suggestive. I'm just trying, I'm pausing now because I'm just trying to think to what degree is the theme of, um, of homosexuality and perversity uh, in, in Proust in, inflected along the axis of the involuntary? Uh, um, not, not vividly, I would, at least that's my first impression, just sort of casting one's mind over the entirety of the novel. Uh, whatever it is that one does when one does that. Um, uh, but rather as, I mean, in, in a sense one might say it's, it's inflicted, uh, inflected as much um, along uh, the, um, you know, the axis of, put it this way, it's as if, you know, Odette's and Albertine's infidelities uh, are in the same category as, you know, the secret that this person both uh, fidel infidelity is both the secret that the person creates in being unfaithful and then uh, maintains and, and, and holds ma in secrecy by uh, maintaining the secret as such. And, and so in both of those ways, um, that theme is an expression of uh, uh, the, the will of the other that one cannot get around. And insofar as what I'm coming around to, um, the theme of homosexuality in, um, that's part of what's so... I don't know, old-fashioned in a way, uh, about the, the theme of, of uh, homosexuality in, in Proust is that it is all under the sign of a secret, right? Uh, um, something that one uh, speculates about uh, another person, that, that that person retains as a secret. And, um, and, and insofar as that's at least one of the major um, signs under which the theme of uh, homosexuality takes place, then, then I would say it is... It's, it's, it's closer to um, my uses, anyway, of the notion of, of the will uh, than it is of, if we're thinking of desire as sort of opposite or complementary to that as being like, you know. So the accursed race theme of homosexuality would put it differently, right? Because there, what's, what's, what's being sort of highlighted there is that, is that this is um, something to be visited upon a person and not, not, not an expression of I just realized it was behind the schedule. Really. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sure. No, no, don't. I, that's not. Uh, I didn't mean that. Come out the wrong way. Um, but, but, um, I, you know, we're obviously going to be coming back to these issues. But I was thinking maybe what 